Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. On today's show, we round up the group stages of the Under-20 World Cup from a South American perspective. And there's also chat about violence in Cali and Colombia, women's football in Colombia, and also a look at the playoff contenders there. So first up, let's introduce our team today. We've got WFI's favourite number 10, Simon in Colombia. How, how are you today? Did your side win? Yeah, we did. We got a 4-2 win today. Uh, my feet are a bit injured. I don't know what happened. I changed boots three times during the game. <laughs> That's the most luxury of luxury number 10s. Uh, in the end, I settled with the Mizunos. They were quite comfortable. But So I'm sunburnt and sore, but we got a 4-2 win, so, so all is good. And also with us today is um, Tom Robinson. There in England, but I think his heart's in Argentina a lot of the time. How many pairs of boots do you own, Tom? I'm sticking just to the the one. You know, you got got to be faithful to to the old uh, Adidas Predators. So they've they've never betrayed me just yet. So um, yeah, I'm sticking with them. But yeah, everything's good over here. Enjoying a nice uh, bank holiday with some unseasonably good weather. So. Also a little bit sunburnt, but you know that's that's the English way. So I'm glad to see we're all representing across the globe. Yeah, well, my boot contract with Umbro—they've only sent me a couple of pairs in the last ten years. So up your game, Umbro. Anyway, let's uh, kick kick things off with a look at the Under Twenty World Cup. And first of all, a, a country which has represented South America brilliantly so far, and that's Venezuela. And I think it's fair to say that they've been the most impressive side in the whole competition. To date, with a perfect record of three wins out of three, ten goals scored and none conceded. Uh, it was one of the best records ever at this stage of any Under-20 World Cup. And it's even more impressive given this is only their second ever appearance in the competition as a nation. Back in 2009 with uh, Solomon Rondon leading the line, they reached the last 16. So with this squad heading in to the last 16 this year, you've got to fancy them to go further than that. No, Tom? Yeah, definitely. As you said, easily the most impressive South American side. You know, they've, they've got a tricky tie ahead of them. Um, I believe it's Japan that they'll be facing against, but they've been imperious, really. Um, I thought this was going to be a, a potentially tough group for them with Germany and Mexico in there, but they've navigated that so well. Um, they've maintained that really uh, solid defensive line and and obviously they've got Farinas in goal who's, who gives them great confidence from the back yeah they've added that kind of clinical edge that was occasionally lacking from their Sudamericana performance I think Peñaranda has been vital in that he's he's been uh that kind of extra little bit of uh magic in the final thirds um he got an excellent assist for Cordova in, against Mexico to to get them that last win and showing off all the tricks and flicks that will no doubt get a lot of Watford fans excited for uh, for him next year. They, they absolutely hammered Vanuatu, who I think most people would be surprised to see at the tournament. They beat them seven nil. But the fact that Mex- uh, Mexico and Germany own, you know, they really struggled to beat Vanuatu. I think highlights just how impressive that that result against them was. So yeah, they're they're looking good. They're you know all their all their key guys are playing well. They've they've added depth and a bit of quality to their team and. And guys like Cordova, who's top scorer at the, the tournament so far with four goals, is, is much improved, as is Ronaldo Luceno in the centre of midfield. So, yeah, it's, it's looking positive. Um, t- tough uh, fixture coming up, but I fancy them to do well. Yeah, 
Caller has really impressed me in, in, in this under-20 World Cup. Certainly wasn't a standout player for them in the South American Championships. But, yeah, it just seems like he's having a dream tournament. And that was a superb goal, wasn't it, against Mexico yesterday? Oh, yeah, it was a lovely little dinked assist from Peñaranda. And then he brought it down really well, held off his marker. And then, whereas before he probably would have just tried to blaze a shot straight away, he had the composure just to kind of round the keeper and and kind of not the strongest shot across, but enough to deceive the, the defender covering back just to dribble across the goal. Just absolutely epitomizes the transformation almost that, we, that we've seen from him. I know he took a bit of a knock, but it seems like he's okay. And he's become a really important player for them. So um, yeah, it's good that, to see them not only replicating what they did in the Sudamericano, but, but building on it. They've, as we saw against, I think Japan were in the same group as Uruguay. They've got some interesting players who, I know, I know that you were impressed with uh, Kubo, I know the fifteen-year-old. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was just about to say, I think Venezuela have been very unfortunate here in to get the one side that finished third, which I think could also have a really good shot at doing something in this competition in in the shape of Japan and. Um, and yeah, that that fifteen-year-old. Oh, he didn't just impress me. I think he impressed everybody. You no, know, who who who's been watching this under twenty World Cup? Yeah, he's he's absolutely excellent. Like the fact that he could probably appear in another two under twenty World Cups just shows. Well, the the fact that he's he's starring at um, a tournament where he's so far younger than everyone else is 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 really impressive and speaks volumes of his his quality. I mean, I believe he was one of the guys that that Barcelona were trying to sign and then got this transfer ban so you, and you can totally see why they went for him because he's you know he, you know very to avoid obvious comparisons he's got those kind of twinkly toes of Messi and great vision he's providing an assist and he gave Uruguay a lot of headaches um in their in their really close game I thought thought Japan were unlucky not to come away with the result against Uruguay and They've they've shown good battling qualities against Italy as well. So I think if you know if Venezuela were to go out to them, it would be you know no insult to to them. They just come up against a really good side. But I still fancy their defensive solidity to maybe uh, shine through and, and get them through. And and if they do get to the quarterfinals, I I, I think they're most they're more, most likely to f- uh, face the USA, who've probably been more impressive than most people would have expected. It's going to be really, I think that's one of the standout uh, round of 16 ties for me. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to get up early to watch that. If Venezuela do, like you say, beat Japan and then the USA, then they could well face another South American team in the semi-finals in the shape of Uruguay. Like Venezuela, they are yet to concede a goal in this under-20 World Cup. But they didn't manage to score past South Africa in their last match, so they do have a slight blemish on their record heading into this knockout stages. But seven points from three games is certainly a good enough record to top the group. But it's just those three goals scored from Uruguay so far, which I find a little bit disappointing. And if I do have a criticism or doubt about them, then it is whether or not they could maybe play a bit more expansively with such a talented squad they have at their disposal. It just seems like there's a bit of a safety first approach there from the coaches. And I'm not sure it's really, certainly in this group stage anyway, that was particularly necessary. What do you make of that, Tom? Yeah, I agree. The the stats alone would suggest an impressive group stage. You know, didn't lose a single game, didn't concede. But as you said, those three goals, 
especially when you thought they might rack up a couple against uh, South Africa, who are, who are the weakest side in, in that group. Maybe they're just playing with a handbrake on a little bit at the moment. Maybe they're conserving energy for the for the latter stages. They've they've been good, and you know they. I think they've each game has sort of given me a few more worries about them basically because against Italy. You know they they only narrowly won, but they dominated possession and and had a lot of chances. It was only, as we mentioned on the previous pod, some great performances by the Italian goalkeeper that kept um, kept the score so low. But against Japan, they they were on the on the ropes for a lot of that game. You know, even against South Africa, they could have quite easily lost that game. I mean, perhaps they the fact they knew that they were already through played into that, and they rested a few players. But the, there is a worry about the lack of goals they're scoring at the moment. Chapacase is looking looking sharp, but he's not necessarily being as clinical. I mean, his goal against Japan was absolutely beautiful. It was a long ball uh, played forward from the back, and then the right back Rodriguez, who's had an excellent tournament, just brought the uh, ball down really impressively and and squared it to Chapacase, and he, he received the ball in the box, waited for the Japanese defender to slide past him, you know, great composure, and then just to finish it off. And and that was, I think that's something that the Uruguay Uruguayan can look to is. The fact they do have that just extra bit of quality when they need it. Amaral's injury and lack of match readiness has definitely robbed them of kind of that kind of game changer that they can usually count on. As uh, we I think saw in the a, first match, uh, you know, it, when, exactly. when Amaral came on and and broke the deadlock, didn't he, with that stunning free kick? Exactly, and you, you kind of think that maybe they're going to need someone with that extra bit of class to come off the bench and, and sort of tip those narrow ties in their balance so that that's that's a worry um i i do think that they in terms of all the t- tournaments in the team like i think france are probably the most impressive venezuela have been great as we've just said but Uruguay do seem like a, a pretty professional outfit they've got strength all across the side they've got good depth valverde and has been absolutely magisterial in the center of midfield melee's looked good in goal as well i, I don't think there's i mean I, I do believe that there are reasons to be maybe a bit concerned about their title credentials but i still think in terms of the overall quality of the tournament this is a good squad and they should certainly beat saudi arabia in the next round then they would face quite a tough quarterfinal against either portugal or south korea and you could easily see them maybe tying one of those games and it going out on penalties or something unfortunate like that but for all the question marks about them up front i still think there's there's more to be seen from this from this squad so i'm 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 still positive about Uruguay. Yeah, I have to agree with it with you there, Tom. Venezuela and Uruguay, they've been a success story so far from a South American's perspective. But let's move on to the bad news. Argentina are out despite thrashing Guinea 5-0 in their last group game. That surprisingly heavy 3-0 defeat to England in their opening game and a 2-1 loss to South Korea left them needing favours from elsewhere to get out of this group and out of the group stage. And those favours weren't forthcoming from the other groups. So a very disappointing under-20 campaign for Argentina, no, Tom. Not particularly a huge surprise to us. Maybe we didn't have high hopes for them. Lautaro Martinez returned from suspension to bag a brace in that last game. That was nice to see, I think. But it was against the Guinea side that appeared to have very little interest in the game once they went behind, wasn't it? Yeah, totally. It was a really nice brace, actually, from Martinez. The first one, he kind of uh, received the ball, controlled it on his chest, turned on the edge of the area and just curled a beautiful right foot shot into the top corner. And this, uh, the second one, I think it was the second one, it was kind of like, if you remember the... 
Zanetti free kick against England in in the World Cup back in the day. He uh, he received a sort of a disguised short free kick that just you know left the wall absolutely standing there bemused, and he just was completely free in the area just to slam it home. So it was it was a, it was a nice indicator of what he can do, and he's been in great form for Racing. That's almost epitomizes Argentina's youth development these days. It's you know no real semblance of a, a team, no no idea of tactics or how they're going to play but relying on some individual talents up front to to bail them out and unfortunately it didn't work for them this time I think uh, as you said a bit of a disappointment but it really depends kind of what your expectations were I think most people in Argentina were they weren't expecting anything so this isn't yeah it's disappointing maybe the state of Argentinian youth football right now but in terms of their performance in the tournament it was it was very very much expected um, if you if you look at the last five tournaments they've they failed to qualify for two they only made it out of the group in one of those and yeah and before that they won five titles between 1995 and 2007 so it's a it's a real fall from grace and the AFA and um, I think Veron's been put in charge of renovating and uh, rejuvenating that that youth system um they've got they've got a big task on their hands i think there were positives they made a lot of changes um i thought colombato who who came in was it was a good find um he, he looked very composed in midfield chipped in with a goal and a couple of assists i think and generally he he, he looked he looked like a good good player um they really seemed to just basically pay for their poor finishing in the first couple of games uh, they had a lot of possession. I think they didn't concede too many opportunities, but the opportunities they did concede ended up in goals. So yeah, England and South Korea put them to the sword. There was a funny moment in the in the South Korea game where the the goal scorer of the second goal, his celebration was di- you know directly mocking Maradona because in the in the original uh, World Cup draw, Maradona drew. South Korea in the, in the same group as Argentina and appeared to kind of celebrate as if they were, you know, just some team that Argentina should brush aside. So when, when I think it was Pike who scored, um, he went up to the camera and sort of did a little impression of Maradona reading out the, the, uh, the South Korea name. So that, that was quite amusing and a bit of a humble pie for Diego. Don't, don't you think that that was perhaps maybe misinterpreted? a little bit the more I think about it because I, I think Maradona maybe reacted like that you know just thinking back to his own sort of personal rivalry he's got with South Korea you know going all the way back to the when they tried to kick him out of the 1986 World Cup I, I think maybe a little harsh but yeah it was it was a funny it was a funny celebration that's for sure yeah that, I mean that there's definitely there's history between Maradona and South Korea but I think this just uh was the the latest chapter in it, so it made for a, an amusing subplot to, to that game. But yeah, as I've as I've said, Argentina in all all kinds of trouble at youth level. They're just not really producing any defenders. They looked their defensive line was was looked slow and and just generally not very impressive. Their their goalkeeper Petroli had two terrible games and was dropped for the for the final game. Um, and yeah, Ubeda, the the manager. Um, I th- I'm not sure if I mentioned this on the previous pod, but when they were kind of interviewing for for the managerial role of the under 20s, I think 44 managers put their names forward with projects of what they wanted to do, and then it was announced that Uber got the job, even though he hadn't submitted a project. So that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the kind of chaotic state of the the AFA right now. And um, yeah, 
no surprise that they crashed out and yeah yeah i, th- I think um i think there's a real cause for concern though for argentina in the next few years uh, they seem so sort of top heavy in talent you know they, they look like they're gonna have so many options in attacking areas but just it, there doesn't seem to be much defensive talent coming through in the in recent years the only sort of decent defensive talent you can think of is emmanuel mamano who's over at leon right now um, and it's good to see him called up by San Paoli for the for their latest Argentina games. But apart from that, you really struggle to find any any good defenders or fullbacks. Um, you know, it might be a, a result of the kind of economic situation where obviously young attacking players are going to go for a lot more money and you know, once they get sold on, the next young talent comes and replaces them and you kind of get into that cycle. Um, and it may just be even a cultural thing of everyone wanting to be the next Messi or Maradona so less focus is put on those defensive players but either way yeah it's a, it's, it's a real cause for concern and they're they're kind of relying on the generations of you know 2005 2007 and and, and previous previous sort of decent under 20 sides and I think they're going to find in a in four or five years that they really have slim pickings to pick for for their for the national team so yeah worrying times and uh yeah we'll, we'll have to see if San Paoli can re- re- reinvigorate that particular part of uh, Argentinian football. Indeed, indeed. Um, and let's talk about um, a team who I felt certainly had enough to get out the group stage, uh, and it's Ecuador. My, my, my. I think I think they win the award for the most frustrating side to watch in this Under-20 World Cup. In their first game, they blew a two-goal lead and a 3-2 lead uh, heading into injury time. And ended up with a draw against the USA, and and in that one they had blown away the US in the in the in the first half an hour of the match. But you know, like I say, they were two up. I think they even had a chance to make it three. And really, for me, that they, you know, alongside sort of Venezuela, they they looked like one of the most impressive attacking sides in this in this tournament. But then after that, it all, all seemed to go a little bit wrong. They conceded twice. It was two two. They recovered from that and deservedly got back in the lit back in the lead, but they couldn't see the match out. Um, but they were very poor in possession in the last few minutes of that opening game against the US, kept giving the ball away and they were punished right at the death. And it, and in their other two games in the group, you know, they dominated much of it, um, but struggled to score. And against Saudi Arabia, they had loads of chances, especially in the first half. Um, they even missed a penalty through Brian Cabezas, which was... Uh, which was a real disappointment. He's somebody we've praised a lot on this pod. Yeah, they, they couldn't get that equaliser against Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia caught them out late on to go two up. They did manage to get a consolation Ecuador, but it, it meant that going into their last match, they needed a win against uh, Senegal. The match played this morning. We're recording this pod on Sunday night for reference. Yeah, they missed a couple of clear, clear-cut chances against Senegal, but, but they never seemed to quite get into their groove apart from that opening half an hour against the US. A strange tournament from Ecuador, really. Yeah, I think you've summed it up perfectly there, really, that we were talking before their first game of how they're quite an exciting, free-flowing, attacking side that, you know, maybe weren't the best defensively. But yeah, after that first game, I I think that was a real hammer blow to their their confidence conceding that, you know, injury time equaliser to the US. And they just didn't look the same side after that. Obviously, the Coesas penalty is probably another turning point you can... You can look at in terms of how the the fine margins of the tournament that 
that they had. But yeah, I, I think for me, they're probably the most disappointing as well as frustrating, like you say, because I didn't expect too much from Argentina, but I, I expected Ecuador to at least get out of the group here. So yeah, I, I was pretty disappointed. Um, I was very impressed with uh, the young US striker, Josh Sargent. I thought he was, he's been excellent so far and um, I believe he's moved to Werder Bremen. So I think that's, that's a really clever um, signing from them because he's, I think he's one of the younger players in their squad too. So um, I think maybe the US are a bit stronger than we gave them credit for before the tournament. But, you know, if they'd won that first game, then they'd be through. So it's uh, it's a real missed opportunity for Ecuador because this is a, it's a good attacking side, as we've said. So, yeah, very disappointed by by them. And uh, maybe maybe it was just, you know, they rested on that home advantage of the Sudamericano a bit too much and, and didn't adapt to kind of the off-field difficulties that you and challenges that you face when you when you play tournament football uh there, there will still be some good players to emerge from this side or go on to represent the the senior national team in the future but yeah disappointing yeah i i, f- I think one of those players could be the center midfielder uh jordan sierra although I, I i did feel that maybe he could have influenced the games a little bit more than he did and his decision making in the final third, certainly in this game against Senegal that I watched this morning, let him down at time. And you can see he was getting more and more frustrated as as the game went on. Yeah, he looks a good midfielder, nice range of passing. And in the Sudamericana especially, he dictated play well. And I don't think he quite imposed himself on the game, as, as you said. I know that he's been linked to a couple of clubs like Ajax and I think even Man City. So he's certainly one keep an eye on and he's played a role in that uh, sort of surprise title bid by Delphine in the Ecuadorian league. So yeah, he's, he's clearly a good player. Obviously Brian Cabezas is another one who he had his ups and downs, but you know, he's, he's got that raw potential to, to be a really exciting player. There's, there's numerous players in that side. Estupinian, um, I like Washington Corozo, Lino is, you know, has got some good pace and, and can worry defenders and, Joao Rojas, you know, there's, there's there's a lot of good players there, which is why, as I said, it's it's a shame not to be seeing them progressing further in the tournament. Indeed, it is. And um, so, Tom, overall, if you had to sort of pick a winner at this point, I'm quite confident in in one of the South American nations doing it. To be honest, uh, although I think this is a big test coming up for Venezuela against Japan, uh, like we said earlier. But yeah, if if you if you had to pick a winner, who would it be at this stage? For me, the the standout team looks to be France. Uh, I know they're pre-tournament favourites, and they absolutely cruise through their group. Uh, my only worry with them would be the fact they've probably had the easiest group, and they've not really been tested by anyone. They might have a bit of a wake-up call against Italy in the in the round of sixteen. I think that Venezuela and Uruguay, you know, even if they've got their areas they can work on, are probably the next two best sides in the tournament, uh, Japan and South Korea with, you know, more of a home advantage and more, more fans coming to see them will, in, uh, will be dangerous. And they've got some good young technical players. Yeah. They, they'd be probably the main sides I'm looking at the, the yeah, kind I of think- traditional, sorry, the, the more traditional nations like Germany and Italy and Portugal haven't, haven't really done anything too special. Um, I think England have been a nice surprise. They've, they've done well. Yeah. For me, it looks like, France are the strongest nation there. Yeah, I, I think some of the European sides are obviously hampered by the under-21 European Championships happening soon as well. So it means like their squads had to be split into two. But uh, I'd say that Zambia looked quite a 
dangerous outfit, and I'm pretty sure they're going to be Germany in, 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 in the last 16. Although I was reading somewhere that there might be some controversy about the age of a couple of their players. I don't know if you heard anything Never. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't lie, it, it doesn't massively surprise me. But yeah, I forgot to mention Zambia have been one of the most exciting surprises of the of the tournament. They've got the, the brilliantly named Fashion Sakala, um, who's been tormenting the fences and Pats and Dakas very good as well. Yeah, I guess there might be some controversy about them, but it's it's never a dull moment dull moment for them. Right, okay, I think it's time to move on. Uh, move away from the under twenty action happening in, in South Korea and and look here in South America at the goings on in, in Colombia at the moment. First of all, Simon, do you wanna Give us an update on what's happening in women's football in Colombia. I know that you, you're very excited about the development of, of women's football in Colombia. And, um, and there's been a couple of surprise results in the, in, in the last few days, I think. And also some sort of positive news around with, with the crowds, etc. Yeah, sure. We can start with the good stuff. Uh, basically, a lot of the developments this week all go back to a, a speech uh, and a presentation by Di Mayor, which is the Colombian like FA. So uh, Perdomo, who's the president, announced a couple of things which are relevant to a lot of the stories this week. One of the first things he, he, he mentioned was that all of the Colombian men's teams that wish to participate in the Comunabal competitions next year will have to have a team participating in the women's league this year. So uh, there were a few teams that didn't put forward a team for the tournament in 2017. Uh, Atletico Nacional was one, Independiente Medellin uh, was another. So the president said all of the, the men's teams that want to participate in the Libertadores or the Sudamericana have to put forward a team for the tournament next year. The tournament next year is going to have a different format as well. And this is something that they're trialing to look at possibly implementing in the men's game uh, in the future. So the first year of women's football uh, took place uh, from the start of this year up until uh, this month and into the start of next month. But for the 2018 season, it will be January until May, a short tournament with 36 teams participating. All of the uh, men's teams will have a women's team in that, that short tournament. And then from... Uh, October 2018 up until May 2019. So they're looking at doing a new format for the tournament next year. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But in general, the news in regards to women's football in Colombia is really excellent. And I was, you know, I, you know, I, I have great respect for Colombia. I, you know, I love so many aspects of Colombia. But the idea that Colombia being a bit of a macho society, a bit conservative, a bit traditionalist can sometimes be true. You know, it's very religious and, you know, the defined roles of men and women can sometimes be, you know, very important in certain, certainly in rural areas. You know, it's very conservative, very traditional in some aspects. Other ways, it's very progressive. So I wasn't quite sure how, you know, the launch of this Women's League would be taken. But I've been very, very pleasantly surprised by the by the support. It's just, there's there's men's football and there's women's football. It's It's incredible that in such a short period of time, there's there's no stigma there's no you know it's coming from from england and again england is very very progressive in so many ways and in terms of gender equality is 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 one of the better examples in in the world in many aspects of the culture but with women's football there's always a very dismissive sexist approach by a lot of men so i'm so pleased that in in colombia every time you you go on the santa fe uh facebook page the, they report on the men's team and the women's team exactly the same way 
and there's a, an equal number of comments from the men's post and the women's post. And it's all very positive. It's all proud of the team. You know, the Santa Fe fans are so happy that they have a team that's doing them proud. And it's the women's team. And I've seen comments, for example, someone will send a message to the team saying, oh, uh, how much is the football shirt this year? And the response is, do you mean the men's shirt or the women's shirt? And that's incredible for teams that have 100 years of history to suddenly treat this new part of the club as the traditional men's part and, and not see it as separate, separate or different is really, really refreshing. And last night there was a game. So Santa Fe, we'll talk in a minute about the men's team, but they didn't do so well. But straight after that game, the women's team played. And it's Saturday night in Bogota. You know, there's a lot of things you could be doing. But a lot of the fans who attended the Santa Fe game, I would say maybe 15,000 fans, stayed to watch the women's game. And if you watch it on TV, and I did, the sound was exactly the same. They were equally as passionate about supporting the women's team as they had been for the men's team. The same thing as Envigado. I think Envigado got one of their better home attendances for the women's game this weekend, um, which is incredible. You know, to, So it's just really refreshing for me to see that the women's game is being so embraced and so you know appreciated. And you know, women and young girls have these new people to look up to. Men are treating them as athletes as they should. There's no get back in the kitchen talk anywhere, which is just so refreshing. And the football's been pretty good. I've been pretty impressed. Um, the two standout teams in the qualifying stage, because there were there were two, uh, three qualifying groups um, with each with six teams. The two standout teams were Santa Fe, who have put together a very strong team with a lot of Colombian internationals. They've got uh, Lady Gonzalez, uh, sorry, Lady Andrade, in the midfield, who's one of the standout players in the World Cup, and they've got uh, Lacey um, Santos, who's a really good young playmaker. And whereas Envigado, so Santa Fe won all of their games, Envigado won all of their games. Um, Daniela Montoya is a star player for Envigado and the Colombian national team. Um, but this weekend, Envigado were eliminated on penalties to Wheeler over two legs, 2-1, 2-1. And then on penalties, Wheeler just edged it. And last night, Santa Fe uh, saw off America de Cali, again, in front of a packed, packed crowd in Bogota to advance. Uh, today, we've got Cotolua, Cucuta, um, Cotolua 1-0 up in that game. And uh, also Marzo against uh, Bucaramanga. Bucaramanga are lead in that one. So we're going into the semi-finals. But overall, again, so refreshing that it didn't take a massive media campaign. It just took the clubs going. All right, we've got a men's team, we've got a women's team. This is this is the teams we play in the league, and everyone just going, yeah, cool, fine. So I've got a new team to support, which for me is just excellent. Really, really, really good news. I think there you're kind of seeing the power of 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 a community, you no, know? and the community getting behind a club, and that and that can be something which is sometimes lost in the men's game. That's certainly somewhere where women's football can can still have a lot a lot of success if if they can sort of identify within their community. Yeah, I mean the the links to the club I think are very important. You know, people have that immediate. So Santa Fe have now got a women's team. So the Santa Fe fans are going to support the women's team. And especially now that all of the clubs are going to have a women's team, you know, it's just it's just really, really nice to see how normal it's been. You know, Colombia is way, way behind in terms of women's football development, but they have some really, really good players. A lot of women have come across from from Venezuela, from, from the United States, a few as well, uh, from the Caribbean. So it's really nice that there's a game. Every game, you know, the games are on TV regularly. The commentary is exactly the same. The reporting is exactly the same. You know, the newspaper, they get newspaper articles written in the same way as the men's team do. 
it's just yeah it's just amazing that if you don't treat it as something separate and inferior and people embrace it in the right way then it's you know you can launch a successful women's league that gets good attendance and starts to cover its costs very very early and then there's new plans next year to have two teams i think it's just really good for colombian football but colombia in general to show that you know despite these you know the the rumors and the stereotypes of being a macho society that you know people colombians just love supporting their community and supporting you know their their country men and women and you know it's just been really refreshing to see yeah certainly has and uh it'd be it certainly be fascinating to see how that develops over the next couple of years in not such good news in in colombia this week there was some violence in the stadium in cali i believe simon and you're here today to tell us more about that sure so again on this tuesday uh the president of the major uh, perdomo was talking about how they're going to start to combat stadium violence improve the the situation in the stadiums again colombian stadiums have been starting to be upgraded uh, teams like patriotas bucaramanga are introducing more seated sections in the stadium they're becoming much more modern and these are the because colombia has the traditional elite seven or eight teams that we'll be familiar with nacional medellin santa fe you know millionarios then they have a team a group of teams which uh you know maybe they're, they're the they're the one big team in a big part of the country that has no other team so they have a decent support teams like pasto jaguares um, and then there's, you know, a smaller a group of smaller teams who are up and coming. Alianza Petrolera and Vigado is one, Rio Negro. So some of these smaller teams are starting to upgrade their stadiums. And obviously having smaller stadiums, it, it means it's a little bit easier to to create a very modern stadium with a with a relevant capacity. But there's been a lot of talk about implementing uh, the Taylor Report recommendations from 1989 in England after Hillsborough. So there's been a lot of focus on how can we make football safer? How can we improve the, you know, the quality and the security and the experience in the stadiums whilst maintaining, you know, a lot of the great things we enjoy about stadium culture in South America. So that, that was the debate on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, it, you know, there was clear evidence as to why this is something that's urgently needed and possibly more urgently needed than even the propo- proponents of these changes were recommending so it was the copa colombia not the most important tournament most teams put out second teams but it was america de cali against deportivo cali at the america de cali stadium both teams were actually qualified so there wasn't really anything on the line but it's a cali derby and there haven't been that many because america have recently been promoted again deportivo cali just won the game one nil but both teams went through that said um towards the end of the game some of the america de cali fans entered according to a police reports, entered the Deportivo Cali visitors away fan section. And there were, you know, around three or four thousand Deportivo Cali fans. It was a big turnout. So the American Cali fans entered the, the section of the away fans. Some of them, according to a police, police report, some of the non-barras, the non-hardcore fan group members were scared and ran onto the pitch to escape these fans. And once that had happened, then the kind of divide in the stadium broke down. And there were fans from both sides of the stand running onto the pitch, running towards each other from either end of the stadium. Um, And there's been photos. Fans had knives in their hands. The police, again, did a decent job in terms of separating them in the stadium. They were massively outnumbered. Being on a football pitch kind of maybe unsettled some of those determined to you know, inflict violence on the opposition, kind of a weird situation to be in. But that happened. There were, you know, somebody, uh, there were a number of people ended up in hospital. Somebody got shot. Somebody got stabbed. 
there was violence on the streets around the stadium. You know, there's videos of like on the motorway, people running away from fans chasing them, jumping into cars that are just passing, saying, "Get me out of here!" You know, I'm, I'm scared. So it was a real example of some of the the issues and the problems that can still exist in stadiums in Colombia. Um, the issue is there's never enough police. There's a lot of reliance on the logistics teams. And the logistics teams are connected closely with the fans. There's kind of the middle middlemen between the, the club, the officials and the fans. So they do a good job of maintaining things. And again, if you have so many police going into a, to a, a stand with aggravated fans, it can sometimes inflame the situation. But the logistics teams, again, they're not police. They're not in a position to, you know, to prevent thousands of fans running onto the pitch. So there's definitely things that need to, to come in. Um, so it's a tricky situation in Colombia in terms of getting that balance between the, the crazy atmosphere and the passion and, and giving, you know, giving the barras the, the freedom they need to create that and animate the stadium, but also ensuring that they're kept in check and that they work with authorities to keep the members of the group who are less willing to follow the, the rules in check. So there's been a lot of debate and controversy. The result of all of this was that both Deportivo Cali and America de Cali had uh, in the cup, the next three games will be played behind closed doors. In the league, two games, two home games will be played with no fans. And also this weekend, the two get the America de Cali and Deportivo Cali games were not televised on TV. Initially, all press was banned from the games to, as a way of punishing the fans. You're not even going to get to know what happens in this vital game. But in the end, the press lobbied against it. They referenced the constitution and said, you know, this is important information that has to be shared. You know, this is our job you're not allowing us to do. So you know, in the end, the, the Di Maggiore backed down and allowed some press to come into the stadium to report, but it wasn't on TV. Big changes afoot in terms of stadium security and, and management of games in Colombia after this, this again, another horrible display uh, this week. Simon, am I, am I right in, in thinking that you said something about the referee getting blamed for this violence? Yes. <laughs> so referees in Colombia as in many parts of the world, have an impossible job. I've attended games where a team has won 3-0 and it's been, they've cruised to a victory and still the referee gets fans lobbing things at him. And they, they, what they'll do is they'll get two female police officers to escort the referee off the pitch, hoping that these, these macho hooligans are less likely to lob bottles at poor innocent young women escorting the the referee sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but referees have an impossible job and it's really not made any easier when in journalists and newspaper reports are saying oh well you know what do you expect the referee was awful <laughs> it's like well i don't necessarily expect a five-hour riot all over the city with thousands of fans carrying knives and guns because the referee made a bad decision so you know it's one it's an impossible job for the referee yeah and again as i mentioned the game didn't matter both teams qualified which is again ridiculous but again you know people saying well the referee wasn't tough enough and and again there's even i saw an article and there was you know implications you know they were trying to imply that oh you know he's not he's not a tough guy he's not a macho look at him in this this photo he looks he looks quite effeminate you know he's you know he's quite camp so again, I've gone from saying how wonderful Colombia is in terms of you know embracing women's football to now saying that 
and you know a journalist is blaming a referee for being a bit a bit a bit girly and not being tough enough on this important game and it's his fault that there was a riot that lasted five hours and involved people ended up in hospital so again this is awful journalism uh, on this serious subject so one question that i wanted to ask was um i mean in argentina we've had like uh, way fans banned for some time now and i was wondering one if there was any discussions about doing that in in colombia and and two if if the violence is sort of one fan group again against another uh, like a rival fan group whereas because a lot of the time in argentina the main violence actually comes from who's controlling the barra and as a result this kind of away fan ban hasn't actually stopped a lot of the violence in argentina so i was, I was just wondering how that kind of compared and cr- contrasted to the situation in colombia yeah no absolutely i mean i think personally i think the barras are the key to success in terms of these reforms um there has been stadium bans uh, in medellin there was a uh, no away fans until around a year a year a year and a half ago when the current mayor made it one of his key policies football and pass was his key you know it won him an election you know obviously there are other factors but it definitely played an important role in saying look I'm going to make sure that we can have away fans in a stadium and it doesn't turn into a bloodbath. So far in, in Medellin, again, the, the number of away fans is limited, but there's been a big campaign and it's worked quite well. I think Cali has had particular issues. Yeah, every every city has, but going back to the America to Cali relegation, there were riots in the streets, which were some of the worst football-related you know, incidents. Um, and I think now the team's newly promoted. It's definitely you know, a very you know competitive situation. Deportivo Cali have been involved in issues with Medellin, in, with Independiente Medellin as well. So I think in particular, American and Deportivo is is a very tricky one to manage. Newly promoted America, lots of tension, which hasn't played out on the pitch in a while. So I think it's particularly difficult with, with the two candy clubs. And I definitely think there will be steps taken possibly to ban away fans for the next game. They're taking it very seriously, Di Major. They've definitely clamped down on this one. In Medellin, there's a Clasico today. I, I don't think there'll be any issues. I think Independiente Medellin and, and Atletico Nacional have come to a good understanding, both between the, the rival Barras, in terms of the club, the government's involvement, the club's involvement. You know, there's there's clearly been some good steps made in that regard. Yeah, I mean, in terms of within the Barras, in the major club, there's quite a well-established hierarchy, which makes it a lot easier. So, for example, with Atletico Nacional, they have Los del Sur, which is the overarching Barra from the south side of the stadium, which is the most important side for, for the hardcore fans. And within that, they have different blocks, Mafia 89, Prado Verde. And those are smaller groups that kind of answer to the overall directors of the Los del Sur Barra. So I think having that hierarchy means that there's certain individuals who are accountable for what happens. And it's like a carrot and stick approach. You know, we'll give you a bit more freedom with these fireworks if you then ensure that nothing happens. And and that's kind of how it works and how it can be you know effective because the directors of these barras know that they need to keep their guys in check to be able to continue to have away fans in the classical for example or to be able to so i think having that clear hierarchy and having clear incentives means that in theory the barras can manage themselves quite well um it's these isolated incidents and you know it, yeah it's the responsibility of the group and again on Caldas have a group called Holocaust Norte. I hate that name. Like, what are you doing? But 
whatever. And they have a bit more of a reputation of violence within the barra. So it just depends on the club. The Atletico Nacional's barras are really run like a business. They have they sell merchandise, they have shops, they have all kinds of stuff, and they're quite legitimate. Obviously, there's other things happening as well. So I think it depends on the club and how the hierarchy is in place and the relationship they have with the the directors and the police and so forth. Um, I think definitely the barras are the key to managing it properly. But obviously, as we've seen, that can break down and that can be really dangerous if the policing isn't there to back up the the balance and, and power and, and stability in the stadium. Yeah, I, f- I, f- I think the big challenge for the Colombian authorities will be to to maintain the atmosphere um, in the in the stadium because in the two countries I've lived in in my life, uh, both in England and in Chile, when there was a big crackdown, and rightfully so, on on like hooliganism in the stadium, the atmosphere then after did suffer. That's certainly going to be one of the one of the challenges. Again, I think. There's a little bit of tension with the Di Major. Um, some of the fan groups are a bit wary of this new president who's very hardline. Again, people recognize there has to be changes and there has to be things implemented. Um, but I think, again, if we look at the recommendation of following the Taylor report in England, there's a lot of things that really aren't viable. I mean, in terms of seating, allocated seats, again, in the populares, uh, it's very difficult to believe that will be something implemented. Obviously, they can manage in terms of the number of people coming in and having numbered tickets, but having a designated seat in a sea of jumping, screaming, banners everywhere, you know, it would be very difficult to implement that. And if they did, then I think it would take uh, so much away. Uh, you know, the barras have a certain block in the stadium, so they'd have to make sure that they got the tickets that match those seats that they are accustomed to sitting in for the displays, the band have to get the front row. You know, there's lots of things like that. I mean, obviously, cameras, security cameras would be a good thing, which they've mentioned. The kind of things in the Taylor report, it's just unrealistic for a country like yeah. Colombia to be able to afford <laughs> a lot of the things which are in there. Yeah. Especially when you can't sell the product on the pitch to like a worldwide worldwide audience like the Premier League to, to get in more money. So... I think it's probably good to copy some of the things maybe in the Taylor report, but it's it's certainly going to be a a difficult task to implement a lot of the recommendations that the Taylor report includes. Yeah, I think things like identifying fans, repeated offenders in terms of violence, in terms of not fulfilling the the agreed upon rules, um, cameras that face recognition, cameras and stuff in some of the stadiums is something that's viable and in the smaller stadiums shouldn't really be necessary i mean the policeman could take a camera and take a photo because it's not we're not talking about a sea of fans in some of the smaller stadiums so i think in terms of identifying the individuals who aren't fulfilling you know the the rules of the stadium and, and the law and you know having that interaction with the barras and saying that this guy has done this and this we're going to arrest him or you need to make sure he's expelled from the stadium you know i think the barras are the guys who are able to implement these 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 improvements, these changes most effectively. So they have to be involved in the process because if the police come into the stand and try and kick people out, it's just going to create problems. Whereas if the barras are involved and they understand what's required and can police it within their groups, it would be a lot easier. So I think, again, every club has a different situation in terms of the structure of the barra, in terms of the respecting the police and respecting 
the laws of the country. <laughs> um, and obviously there's certain illegal aspects to the Baras as well in terms of, you know, everything from prostitution to money, law, you know, d- drugs, trafficking, drug sale. You know, there's they touch on all of those issues as well at some point in some of the Baras, in some of the groups. So there's there's always that slight tension in terms of working with authorities. But for example, a big team like Atletico Nacional, everybody knows who the leaders are. They, If they're held accountable as the leader of the group, as in with any organization, I think that's the way of ensuring everything is is, is improved. Yeah, certainly, certainly seems to be a case. Simon, the Colombian League is coming to the, to the end and the top eight, is it the top eight that qualify for the playoffs, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and, and those playoffs are pretty much decided, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's still a couple of games. Atletico Nacional and Independiente Medellin, first and second. Medellin, are, sorry, Nacional have got 49 points. So they're miles ahead. They're 10 points ahead of Medellin. Top of the league, they just run away from it. You know, we've talked about them a lot in the Libertadores, but in the league, they just keep getting the results, grinding them out, uh, just keep keeping the wins. So they're playing uh, Medellin in a classical that isn't relevant in terms of league positions or or playoffs or so forth, but they're both in and it's going to be a fun game. And I think it should be a, you know, it should be a competitive game. Um, then after that, Pasto made it in the third, which again is one of those teams which are not from a, you know, not a traditionally massively important team in Colombia, but they're from a region which doesn't have many teams nearby down to the south of Colombia. So it's nice to see them represented and, you know, it'll be, it'd be good to see them do well. Then after that, Millonarios, again, another team we've seen in the Libertadores, if only briefly, unfortunately. Uh, very, very talented squad, still starting to grow into the... They've made a lot of changes. Some of the traditional players, uh, Roballo, for example, has been moved out and they brought in some very good young players. Uh, they're getting a nice balance. Top goal scorer uh, is, is their add-on. Um, Cristian Aranjo, a player I really like backing him up. So they've got a good squad and I think they're just going to keep getting better and better Millonarios. Finally, they've made some changes and finally they look exciting and, and ren- rejuvenated. After that, Jaguares. Again, a team from Cordoba, which isn't a, you know, they've only even existed for five years. This is the first time they've ever made it into the playoffs. So they've qualified in fifth. So the, in terms of the draw, the top four will be on one side of the draw and the next four. So basically, the top four will play against five down to eight in the, in the playoffs. It'll be drawn, but it'll be those two groups separated. So Jaguar is in fifth. Great to see them in there from Cordoba, again, uh, away from a lot of other teams. So they'll get a good support if they do well, but they're not a big traditional team. Deportivo Cali and then America de Cali in sixth and seventh. They both had their positions pretty much confirmed before the final weekend's games. And then it was um, Bucaramanga, Santa Fe, Alianza competing for that, for that final spot. Uh, and Santa Fe, Second time in a week have wonderful news. Out this of the is tournament. wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Second time in a week, they drew one all at home and eliminated themselves in a game that they really should have won or really could have won. So they drew one all with Alianza and managed to both eliminate each other. We're allowing Bucaramanga to sneak in and get into the eighth position. So those are the top eight. Um, we'll see how it goes. You know, there's lots of big teams in there. You know, Santa Fe dropped out, but a lot of the other major powers in Colombia have made it through to that the final tournament. Junior, down in 15th, uh, are the one exception in terms of the big, big clubs in Colombia who didn't who didn't qualify, along with Santa Fe. So we'll see how they go. I mean, Nacional will be one of the favourites, especially now they're not in the Libertadores. They're very keen to pick up that win. Medellin have played some really good football. Millonarios, I think, uh, could be an outside bet. Good quality squad. 
still kind of finding the, you know, working out the best formation and getting everyone settled in with these new additions, but a very interesting team. Deportivo Cali have got some quality. And then America, again, newly promoted America, <laughs> newly promoted and possibly soon to be relegated, despite being in contention for the championship. They're still second bottom in the relegation table in Colombia, which is two points off Jaguares, who are also in maybe win the championship. So we can have a championship final between two relegation contenders because Colombian league is mad and relegation is over three years. Um, but yes, yeah, so lots of lots of big teams in that in that tournament. Draw will be made this week. And then we'll see how we see how we do on the way to the final. Yeah, the fact that Atletico Nacional have only conceded five goals in 19 matches so far is pretty remarkable record, especially <laughs> considering how dodgy that defence looked in the Libertadores. <laughs> yeah, I mean they they rotate quite a lot, and I mean obviously this brings calls to maybe incorporate some of the the rotated players. I mean we saw in the final Libertadores game they made a few changes and they did look better. So, but yeah, just overall with Nacional, I mean, especially with the league stage of the tournament, most teams know that losing to Nacional isn't going to make or break their season. Um, you know, there's eight qualifiers, there's no relegation. So quite a few teams will kind of go out against Nacional and accept a loss. And I think Nacional being so well organized and you know being able to manage games well, score a goal and, and see it out. You know, I think with the final eight and with the knockout two-legged playoff uh, to the to the championship i think there's not going to be any easy games for national so there'll be a new challenge for them because i do think if you're down in 17th position and you're not going to get relegated because it's over three years and national score you probably won't have the incentive to try and you know what tie yourself out run yourselves into the ground to get an equalizer you probably just take the result and move on to the next game you know this is one of the the drawbacks of this colombian system okay okay fascinating stuff and i think we're finished the pot up there for this week is there anything you guys want to plug tom i'll come to you first no not too much at the moment um i should have a piece up on esdf analysis about a young Ecuadorian striker called Michael Estrada, who's who's looking very good for pod favourites Independiente del Valle. But yeah, other than that, just follow me on my Twitter at TomRobbo89 um, for plenty more Under-20 World Cup and Argentinian stuff. And Simon, where can people find you? On Twitter at SimonEdwardsSAF. I, I was getting a lot of questions about what's going on with Cali, so I woke up on Saturday morning at eight in the morning and thought, no, I'm just going to write something. So <laughs> I wrote a, quite an extended piece about the Barra Brava, the, the football sports of culture in South America and some of the touching on some of the proposed changes and, you know, whether they would work out, you know, some of my recommendations in terms of how Colombia can get control of the, some of the issues in the stadium and, and still maintain something that I think is amazing. You know, I, you know, something that, for example, having, for me, the best thing about the, the stadium culture is having the guy who is the lowest of the low Monday to Friday, the guy with the scruffy clothes and the mullet who everyone crosses the street to avoid becoming the most important guy at the, the stadium in the you know the most important event of the weekend. Him becoming the king and leading all of these fans in this, you know, these songs and these displays, you know, for me, that's really cool. One of the best things about football in South America and, how we can maintain that, but also prevent some of the violence and the issues. Uh, that's something on the World Football Index website this week. Okay, and um, you can find me at Kinesia Scores on Twitter. I'm hoping to do a piece on Felipe Mora at some point this week. 
up and coming striker here in Chile. I'll certainly be looking forward to reading your article, Simon, on Colombian football violence. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to check out yours as well, Tom. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the show today. As always, as always. Maybe as much as your son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might have to do this outro again. <laughs> no, I like it. It's good. <laughs> As, as you can hear in the background most probably it's, uh, it's, it's time to finish up the show today and just to say a massive thanks to our, to our listeners as always big thanks for Simon and Tom giving up their time and coming on and sharing their wealth of knowledge and, uh, and it's goodbye from me <laughs> <laughs>